Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. We've gone through Ecclesiastes. We've uh, completed that, but as I'm going on to the book of Ezra, uh, I find myself caught in the middle of all sorts of prophecies from Haggai to Jeremiah to Isaiah to Esther to... Uh, all these books in Nehemiah, they're all linked over and over again. And they're linked to other ideas over and over again. Uh, as we visited way back in doing Exodus 35, where it supposedly, ye shall kindle no fire throughout your habitations upon the Sabbath day. And I just listened to a ministry, Truth Ministries or some sort of name, uh, trying to interpret that uh, and going back to the Talmud and, and some of that information, which is also, we, we have to go back to uh, writing such as that because somewhere along the line, actually many times throughout history, people have been steered the wrong way concerning what we call the sacred scriptures or the biblical text to think a particular way when they're looking at at these scriptures. Part of that is due to translations. Part of it is due to interpretation. But ultimately, it's because we're not really listening to the Holy Spirit. We're still eating of the tree of knowledge. So here I come along and going back to all these different commentaries on all these different books... And I make reference to those commentaries. But in going over the book of Esther and listening to the commentaries and going and listening to some very well put together uh, explanations of uh, Ezra and uh, these other books, um, I see that there is a, there's a struggle amongst the scholars to interpret exactly what books like the book of Ezra is saying. And uh, that struggle is because when they come across the truth and it knocks them flat, they pick themselves up and dust off the truth and go on with what they believed before. Their hearts are not humble enough to say that if this is so, everything I thought about this is wrong. And I have to rethink what I thought was true. I have to look deeper and overcome my pride bias and admit I was wrong. And what I believed to be true just ain't so. And this this is a, a struggle. This this whole idea of strange fire, which we will eventually go back and revisit. And this is what I'm seeing. There's just no way to go through each of these books to the full depth of what they're saying in the books until we connect the dots that nobody wants to look at. Why is somebody put to death because they started a fire on the Sabbath? Why is that so wrong? 
And it goes much deeper. And of course, like strange fire. And the same word for fire is the same word for woman or wife. And so we've taken you in lots of different areas as we go through these different uh, books. Book of Exodus uh, took us to Sumer and to the turtle dove goddess and to the altars of Nisi. I just heard a Bible guide that I, I listened to. I thought I, I've heard about him many times, so I thought I would go and listen to a few of his episodes. They're only 10 minutes long. He it, calls it the 10-minute Bible hour. And so he does these little shows, 10 minutes. And he talks about the Bible, but he doesn't get into a lot of the detail of the, you know, we show you the Hebrew, you know, back there where he talks about kindling the fire in verse 3 of Exodus 35. You know, we show you what the original words would mean to kindle fire and, and how they would be written. You know, how how they would spell those words. You know, this fire to kindle would be, be it, uh, an resh. But it doesn't appear as be it, an resh in the actual text. It's tav, be it, an resh, vav. And so, uh, it is actually, you know, the same word of kindling a fire can be translated stupid and brutish or even to be grazed. If you grazed off a field, it would be the same word that we see, the the bar, the biet am resh. And so they're definitely trying to tell us more in the actual Hebrew text and, you know, we've come across this many times where a particular word, a single word, like the word that would be, that means Corby or forced labor. Uh, there's actually three completely different words uh, in spelling that can be interpreted forced labor. One is mas. But the same letters, mas, show up in numerous different uh, strong-numbered words. You know, there'll be one that is translated tribute, which is mas, uh, uh And it can appear with three letters or with two letters. And uh, one is four, five, two, two. And it's translated tribute and tributary and levy and confitted or taskmaster. All these different words, but it actually has to do with this corvi, this statutory labor, where a portion of your labor belongs to God. Well, there's another word that is uh, given the number 5447 in the Hebrew, and it's sumuk biet lamad, and it, it's translated burden or charge, but it it really means very much the same thing. And you find it in ancient Akkadian scripts. And you find it in uh, in uh, cuneiform writings. There's, there's a... Uh, they found almost uh, or more than 20,000 tablets 
in one of the archaeological excavations of some of these ancient cities that we will be visiting uh, the history of when we go into the book of Ezra. You know, these kings, Cyrus and uh, Xerxes and Darius, they, they were conquerors of these cities and they operated governments. And uh, we've mentioned the Hammurabi Codes. And the Hammurabi Codes replaced the, what you might call the Codes or the Judgments of the Mari. Well, now we've found the cuneiform writings that chronicle the Mari. The, these, at least that's what they call it, the Mari tablets or documents, which are clay. And therefore... Many of them are virtually undamaged, not like a lot of the papyrus writings that have been, you know, where we get little bits and pieces of it and half the, it looks like something redacted out of the uh, uh, government. Because you can't read this part and you can't read that part because it's gone. But many of these cuneiform writings that we have them, that we have so many of the tablets that it's a monumental task to even document each tablet. Now, a lot of them are personal. Uh, some of them are letters. Some of them are uh, administrative affairs. Some of them refer to trials. Uh, a lot of them refer to economics. And, and like, they just came out with the, the new COLAs for Social Security, the cost of living adjustment uh, that uh, have come out and... Uh, they're not going to be able to keep up with their inflation. <laughs> they were delayed in coming out with them. So if you've been dependent upon Social Security and you think there's a fund, I just read somewhere where somebody was talking about why am I not going to be able to get my benefits of Social Security when that money is put in my account? Well, it isn't in your account. <laughs> You're under a delusion that you think you have a Social Security account that has the money that you've been paying in for years and years and years. No, there is no money in your account. You don't have an account. They take an accounting of you. The scribes of Social Security take an accounting of you and they decide how much you're going to get. And we see that amount decreasing. I mean, it may go up. It will increase. But because of the cost of living index and uh, adjustment, it may not go up as fast as the prices of things are going up. And so where you couldn't get by on what you were getting before, now you're guaranteed you can't get by. Well, the point is, those funds that you've been paying in are part of that Cove, uh, uh, Corby, uh, Sebel. That uh, mass, and, and there are other words, but we're not going to do the show entirely on that. But we're putting, I'm putting together more and more information on that because this is going to be a key element of understanding the biblical text that people do not want to look at. Uh, when you see in, in the reference to Gibeonites, hewers of wood and drawers of water, and, and scholars know this. That they're actually talking about, they were reducing them to the corvee laborers. They would be cutting wood. 
They would be drawing water. They would be building walls. They would be fulfilling tasks. In, in systems of forced labor, unpaid forced labor, where you had to work under a taskmaster and you didn't get paid. Your labor was tax. You, that's how you paid the tax. You paid it with your labor. We haven't got to that stage right now, but the, the Mas Ovid is that stage where the manpower of the individual is actually extracted. I mean, you were actually, they rotated guys in. Solomon did this. Rotated workforces in. Thousands of men would march off and go work on his cities or his walls and build them with their actual labor. Now, some men, they're not wall builders. They're not stone cutters. They're not menial laborers. They're, they're, they may be artisans. They may know how to be scribes, you know, bookkeepers, taking account. They may know how to figure out the cola, you know, the cost of, uh, of living adjustment, which was delayed because of COVID, because of delays in the government, because of government shutdowns. They they didn't come up with a figure. So, are we going to take those accountants, those guys who calculate this up, and say, oh, we got to have you go over here and build a wall? Because, to tell you the truth, they probably don't know how to build a wall. (laughs) They they probably don't even know how to do manual labor. I mean, some of them might, but some of them aren't going to know. It's not very efficient. What's efficient is you just take a portion of their wages... And you move them over here and you pay somebody from Mexico to build a wall. <laughs> or some some contractor who runs machinery to build the wall. But the guy who's really building the wall is the guy who had the funds re- extracted from his wages and moved over through a process of accounting. But guys, the accounting was done by guys who can't do the build the wall. But that's still a Corby system of statutory labor. A portion of your labor you do not get to keep. It goes to the service of Solomon. Or the service of Xerxes. Or the service of Darius. Or the service of Cyrus. They extract your sweat and toil. And it goes over to this other group. And we see that in the Mari. Now, originally, they didn't have much of that. Very little of that. By the time they come around to the Hammurabi codes, they have a lot of that. And they need a lot of that. Because there's a lot of money missing. In Egypt, when all the gold went to the pharaoh, and, and literally even the silver was mostly in the hands of the government. The government was very wealthy, but what was also in the hands of the government is one-fifth of the labor of all Egyptians, all, you know, Hittites or anybody else who lived in Egypt at that time, all of the um, Israelites and, and Egyptians and other foreigners who lived in Egypt all went into the bondage of Egypt. Back in Genesis. 
One-fifth of their labor now belonged to the government. And all the people were in a virtual state of slavery. They they could keep 80% of their labor, but 20% of their labor belonged to the government. And that was the bondage of Egypt. The problem with that is it weakens the people, especially if it's used to finance a system of social welfare in society. It will weaken the people. It will degenerate the bonds, what we call the social bonds of a free society. And it will give more and more power of choice and decisions to the government. And that's why God forbid us to ever go back to the bondage of Egypt, back to this Corvée system of statutory labor where a portion of your labor belonged to the government. Whether it was Solomon or David or Saul. Because King Saul began the idea of a Corvée because he forced a sacrifice. He didn't really... Nobody really got the Corvée going as much as Solomon did until Solomon. He could not have built his cities unless he established that labor force that worked without pay or, or marginal pay, less pay. They they were not given the value of their labor. Their Their labor was taxed. They actually sent, like I said, work crews. But whether you send work crews, I know for a fact in history. And you can actually go through some of these cuneiform writings and find evidence of this. Is that everybody was taxed by the king, whether it's King Asa uh, or whoever. They would be yeah, the king of Sodom. He would take a portion from each individual, head tax. There's actually three different names of, of the taxes, you know, and I mentioned the Moss and the Sebel, or Sebel, or Sablum. It's pronounced different ways because so many different countries, so many different city-states implemented this idea of taking a portion of the labor of its citizenry to fund the government. But if you take... See, there's a lot of other ways you can impose taxes. Imports, tariff and excise taxes. Uh, The government can have uh, literally, uh, you know, charge for services. But of course, the government that Moses set up was all supported by free will offerings. As a matter of fact, that was one of the very first rules we get coming down from Yahweh, the Lord, is that all the offerings that come into his temple, his tabernacle, his government, which was operated by the Levites, the people we call the Levites, they were, they belonged to God to provide the services of his government. They received a tithing And there were lots of different forms of this, and we'll go over those in detail. We make some reference to it. I'm expanding the pages that we have on this. As we go through the book of Ezra, we'll see guys uh, 
brought up singers. What are singers? Uh, what, what are, uh, some of these other characters that we see coming up in, in, uh, the book of Ezra? And so I'm, I'm creating pages that describe this and I'm going not only to the records we have on King Cyrus, but the records that we have on all the other governments round about those areas at those times earlier and later. Because they have this same people running those governments. They have names for those people running those governments. Those government bureaucrats that are providing these services. Because, you know, when Moses left Egypt, he left with widows and orphans. Who's taking care of them? How are they taking care of them? When they were in Egypt, what were the priests doing? The when you read in the, the Talmud, they talk about. Uh, well, we'll we'll go into in detail more when we as we go through Ezra, but they talk about the servants of the fire. But the same word for fire is the same word for woman or wife. So they're the servants of the woman. Who's the woman? The turtle dove goddess? Why is the goddesses of welfare in Sumer and Babylon and Ishtar? Why are they all female? Because the females take care. They're the nurses. They're the, uh, they're the caregivers. They're the ones who prepare the bread, grind the grain. As we saw when we were going through Ecclesiastes, it talked about the, the grinders. Not making much noise. Because there's not much grain to grind. Because there's not people working at that process or that part of sustaining the infrastructure of society. All these uh, things are real and practical. I just had a conversation with somebody about graven images. And he he doesn't get it. He thinks that it's about making statues out of with your hands and then somehow bowing down and worshiping those statues. No, it goes much deeper. And if you want to go deeper, you have to look deeper. We'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we will get into Ezra, and uh, we will be going through it piece by piece again. And But we will be doing some rabbit trailing, because that is the nature of Ezra, is that he is constantly uh, making references to things that are covered in other books of the Bible. Like I said, in Jeremiah, and Haggai, and Nehemiah. And Nehemiah and the book of Ezra used to be one book. Somewhere along the line, somebody decided to split it. And then, like I say, you can get into... If you went out and looked for studies on the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah and Haggai and all these things, especially the book of Ezra, is that they're seeing... Supposedly, they were all one book, but they had these lists of people and lists of things that were taken to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple 
and then they start building it one way and then they set off and don't build it that way and then they return to building it. And in the meantime, Ezra is giving instructions and kings are making writing letters and making edicts. Uh, and the edicts are basically saying that these Nethanim and, and singers and priests and Levites are exempt. You know, when they're traveling from one place to the other, you cannot take the funds they're carrying. Because of these edicts by these kings. And when we were back studying in the, in the New Testament and, and uh, looking at the book Thy Kingdoms Comes, I actually show in there that Caesar Augustus extended that same exemption to the ministers of the Temple of Judea. But unfortunately, the Temple of Judea at that time had moved from the Corbin of free will offerings to the Corbin of compelled offerings. And they did it by you signing up as members under Herod and the Pharisees. And then you had to pay in a portion of whatever you produced. And they had a whole bureaucratic system of priests who would come to your field or come to the marketplace And they would count what you were producing or what you were selling because there were sales tax in the Roman marketplaces and there were sales tax in some of the marketplaces of of uh, Herod where they had these official marketplaces. And they would pace off your field and calculate how much grain they were going to get out of your field and they would count the... uh, branches on your cummins plants in the window because they have a right to a percentage of them. And Jesus calls them out on it. That their system of Corbin, their system of sacrifice, because that's what Corbin means, doesn't draw you near the Holy Spirit, but draws you near destruction because their system was a one-purse system. And that runs towards evil. But you don't understand these things because your your pastors and your shepherds and your priests aren't teaching them. And that's what Ezra is trying to do is teach these to the Levites, to the people. And we read Ezra, we should pick up on it. But the guys who study Ezra they almost never talk about that. They talk about, oh, well, the, the this adds up to, you know, 4,000 and this only adds up to 2,000 and these people are mentioned going to Jerusalem and these people are not and these people are called children of the province and these people are called the sons of so-and-so. Why? And they're arguing about all these other things and they don't get the basics. And why don't they get the basics? Because of what we've already covered in Exodus and some of our, when we, we haven't gone through Genesis, through the entire Genesis, but uh, we have to go back to Genesis from time to time in order to understand what's in Exodus. And we have to go back to Exodus in order to understand what is in Deuteronomy. And we have to go back 
to Deuteronomy to understand what's in Leviticus. And now, when we're out there in the middle with Ezra, we're going to have to go to Jeremiah, Haggai, and Esther, and all these other books, piece by piece, in order to put the pieces of the puzzle together, to connect the dots, and find out, you know, what is what. We, on our afternoon show, somebody was asking about the fact that I say all roads lead to Rome and all roads lead to the kingdom of God. It depends on what direction you're going. Well, the, although Rome is a location, when I use the word Rome, I use it as a metaphor for that type of government, what Rome became. It became an indirect democracy. It had been a republic. It was mostly based on free will offerings. That the Senate had almost no legislative power whatsoever. It was this the, you know, they were gathered together in what they call the hearths, which is like ten, twelve families, and then they would pick a guy, and then those guys would get together and they would pick a guy, and they created a network, which became their military overnight, but also became their firefighters. Like I said, you know, Tiberius took a whole force of centurions, whole legion, and sent them north to put out a fire that he could see glowing in the sky north of Rome. And they go marching off, going north to find the fire. They didn't have cell phones, they couldn't call up or anything. Well, the light that he was seeing in the sky that they mistook for a forest fire in the north woods. I mean, they're going to have to climb over the Alps to get to this fire, right? But it's going in the sky. It must be the entire north woods is on fire. So who do they send? They send the military. Because they weren't just the military. They were the militia. Now, then, by then it had become a professional army, but that's who they sent. Well, it was going to be a long march because what they were looking at was the Aurora Borealis. It was so bright and glowed in the sky so bright at that particular time, which is at the time of Christ, that you could read a manuscript outside in the middle of the night with no moon. Because it literally lit up the street so much. And they thought it was a forest fire, but it was the Aurora Borealis because of the events upon the sun. But who did they get to go to fight the fire? They got the centurions, the, the legions. Because they did all kinds of things. Legionnaires built bridges. They built docks. They built harbors. You know, they they loaded st- stones onto ships and went out and slid the stones off to drop in to create a water break so they could bring ships in and unload the ships at deep harbors, which they dredged out. They were engineers. They were the, the Army Corps of Engineers that we have today. Everything was practical. Well, so was their religion. So was their graven images. The graven image that we talked about in Exodus, if you, if you followed that, all those recordings are still up. I'm still going back and adding little tidbits because of the fact that we can start tying all these books together 
and the message together because it's the same message from the beginning to the end. People say, oh, the Old Testament is done away with. Then why is Jesus quoting it all the time? Why is Paul quoting it all the time? Why is Peter quoting it all the time? If I quote it, they say, oh, well, the Old Te- that's Old Testament. That's done away with. No. No, it's not done away with. It's, it's the, what's done away with is the misunderstanding of the Old Testament. That's what the New Testament did. Because if you knew Moses, you would know Jesus Christ. Because Moses talked of the way of Jesus Christ. He was trying to teach the people the way of Jesus Christ. But people didn't learn the way. They learned a false way. And that's one of the things that we see in um, in the b- book of Ezra. And the people writing about it, the Talmud. The Ignis Fatui of the Talmud. That they claim there's ten new laws and orders, commands, that have come out of the book of Ezra that, that we need to follow. You know, and they list them off. I've been going through Ezra, I can't find out where'd they get that? <laughs> where'd they get that? But the more important question is, what are they misinterpreting? And they come up with these ten laws. You know, the public must come together to read from the Sefer, the Torah, on Shabbat. They have to do this regularly. That's a new law that they say comes out of the book of Ezra that everybody has to do. Well, it's not bad to go and read from the Torah. What are you reading? Because when you're reading the Torah... The information first comes into your head. It's the tree of knowledge. What you're reading is knowledge. It is information. See, if we go all the way back to Genesis and we see that the tree of knowledge is your mental capacity. It's your brain. You're the tree of knowledge. That brain stem and all those cells that you think with, you know. And the smarter you are, the bigger your tree of knowledge And the more tempting it is to use your personal knowledge as the source of truth. As the source of what is good and what is evil. But we're not supposed to be eating of the tree of knowledge as the source. We can sit in its shade and we can use its information. But ultimately we need to eat of the tree of life. And the tree of life is spirit. That's our spiritual brain. You know, I was looking, going through my email this morning. I, 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 because I've been working so hard on putting this Ezra together, and, and then that takes me to all these other books, I've neglected looking at my email. So I was trying to get caught up this morning. Well, it will take me hours to get caught up because people are writing me from all over the country. And asking questions and wanting me to read stuff they send to me. And uh, and I try to. But I'm also getting phone calls. But this is this will wear me out the same as it would wear out Moses. And so the people organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They were kind of organized that way already. By Joshua. Coming out of 
the bondage of Egypt. But that's what people have to do. Is they have to organize that way. Ultimately, they have to learn to eat of the tree of life. That has to guide them in what is right and what is wrong. What is good and what is evil. Not the knowledge. I've, I've said this many times. Mostly what I share with you in the form of knowledge and information is to help you set down the baggage you're carrying. Because to carry around all the everything you can get out of the tree of knowledge <laughs> you know you can you can put it on a USB now but no that tree of knowledge is a burden it blocks you from the spiritual wisdom of the tree of knowledge and that you need to not be going according to what information you have but according to the Holy Spirit. But we can look at information to check. And this is what James is telling us. You know, like, how do you know you're following the Holy Spirit? By what you do. Is what you do in conformity to what Christ said that we were supposed to do? Is it? And, and as I was going through the, the Ignis Fatui of the Talmud, telling me about all these different laws. The courts be open throughout the Jewish townships on Mondays and Thursdays. Of course, they didn't call Mondays and Thursdays in those days. Those, are, those words come from Scandinavia. That, that woman would launder their clothes by Thursday due to the Sabbath. You know, and it, this, These rules are going back to the same thing that we just mentioned in Exodus 35. Three, that you couldn't kindle a fire on the Sabbath. And, and now people take it where you can't turn on a light switch, you can't turn off a light switch, you, you can't operate a motorized vehicle because every time that spark plug goes off in, in your vehicle, you're kindling a fire. So, so you can't, you can't drive anywhere in an internal combustion engine. That's the way they interpret it, not being able to kindle a fire. It has nothing to do with fire. It has nothing to do with cooking in your house. Any more than the article we have on milk and meat has anything whatsoever to do with the milk of a goat and the meat of its kid. That you cannot boil a kid in its mother's milk. Those are metaphors. Now, there's a reason they use that metaphor, but the meaning of that metaphor is lost if you focus on the meat and the milk. You unmoor the metaphor from its meaning and make it a mindless ritual. So, we, we, I'm not going to have time to go through all the ignis fatui, those ten laws that they, that somebody with way too much time on their hands thought up after reading the book of Ezra. It's just not the case. And I, I mentioned earlier, just before the break, that uh, I had just had a conversation with somebody. That, that I'm on a number of groups, groups on Facebook, and, and it's it's my way of putting my finger on the pulse of society. And, and I I have to break from my work 
you know, both the physical work and the mental work and the writing and the recordings and all that. Have to break from that and change paces and then come back to that. I can't just stay in here for 15 hours straight. <laughs> I'll go, I'll go crazy. So I, I shift over when I get some time and, and make responses to people who think they're seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, or they even think that they've already found His righteousness. And so somebody asked a question on one of these Facebook groups uh, that, you know, he made the statement, don't make graven images of God and Jesus Christ, that that's an idol and breaks the second commandment of Exodus 24. You know, verse 4. The problem is that graven images have nothing to do with statues. I mean, yes, there are statues. But it isn't the statue that is the problem. It's the purpose and method and means and effect of what the statue represents. And we've gone through this when we went to the book of Exodus. So you can go back there and read Exodus 24 and you can read our article on graven images and our article on idol and idols. I mean, what is idolatry? Paul talks about idolatry. So, but if the Old Testament is done away with, idolatry is okay now. No, Paul's still saying idolatry is bad. But Paul says covetousness is Idolatry. He didn't say it is like idolatry. He says it is idolatry. Why would he say covetous has anything to do with making golden statues or silver statues? And, and how do you worship a statue? I mean, does a statue need to have you bow down to it and serve it? So I, I responded, where were these statues of gold erected that we see erected in many states as graven images simply a pagan superstition or were they symbols of idolatry I mean if we read Colossians we know that covetousness is idolatry are these golden statues symbols of covetousness which is idolatry According to the New Testament, for everybody who thinks the Old Testament is done away with. <laughs> or were they more than symbols, but a part of a one-purse system, an institution which returns the masses to the bondage of Egypt? Now, one purse is mentioned in Proverbs. You know, the one purse, you know, consent, and let's all have one purse. Lurk privately for blood of the innocent. That ends up being a snare and a net and we're captured in our own net if you have this one purse. You can go read our article on one purse to find out that in more detail because we go through it step by step. But Jesus was against one purse because what is one purse but a treasury? And, and that what's in the, the word Corbin is translated in the New Testament as treasury. There's another word, a completely different word for treasury. But the, the word Corbin shows up twice in the New Testament. 
there are other Greek words that are put. Corban is the Hebrew word for sacrifice. There are Greek words for sacrifice. So the word sacrifice shows up many times. But twice they use the Hebrew word in the Greek text for sacrifice. Once they refer to the Corban of the Pharisees, which is making the word of God to none effect, which is saying... The sacrifice of the Pharisees is making the word of God to none effect. So then we have to look at what was the sacrifice of the Pharisees and where was it at? Well, the next time we see the word Corban, they don't translate it Corban. They don't translate it sacrifice. They translate it treasury because that's where your sacrifice is. It's in the treasury. So it is, it's, it could be translated treasury. But you would have to look at the original Greek to realize that they put the word Corban, which is a Hebrew word, in there. Now, there is a Greek word, there isn't even a Latin word, that is like Corban and means Corban, which is sacrifice. Because the Romans had Corban. And originally, in the Republic, the Corban of the Romans was free will offerings. Even when they built their temples... They still had the tradition where the richest people would come there who was supporting the building of the temple. They were funding the building of the temple. Originally, the temple didn't have a building. It was just an area. And then they would build wooden huts, literally. And then eventually, when they started building a lot of things out of stone, they built the stone temple. But they also were getting farther and farther away from the republic and the principles of the republic. It was a slow process. They went through that process over 500 years. America has been going through the same process on a faster pace over the last 200 years. And we can show you in the history how we've gotten more and more away from the Republic. And the people have literally abandoned the Republic. And they've done so to get the wages of unrighteousness. The wages that, you know... Greedy for gain. They said, let's all have one purse. Let's make cities of blood. Which are said in the Old Testament, but the people don't understand. It says right there in the Old Testament, let's build us a city. And Ezra is going to be building a temple and a city and repopulating it. But in the Old Testament, where Ezra is found, they had said, let's build us a city. Like a cauldron. And we be the flesh. In that cauldron. That's that's the one person again. Our bodies. Our sweat. Our toil. Our resources. Individual resources. As human beings. As mankind. Are now pooled together in one system. When they say one person. They're talking socialism. When they're talking a city where we, the city is like a cauldron and we be the flesh. From which in Egypt they freely ate. as one of the things Jordan Peterson and, and these guys just missed going through their book of Exodus. Where they wanted to go back to Egypt where they ate from the flesh pots of Egypt. Those words we see there, flesh pots. That's the same word we see when they're talking about the city is a cauldron, and we be the flesh. They they had their system of social welfare. 
that was run by the priests of Egypt, of which Moses' brother was one of those priests, because he knew the arts of the temple. Somehow, maybe he was a Nethanim, maybe he was an actual priest. The Nethanim, Nethanim are servants of the priests. Once you're in this position of power, you might say, well, I don't want to do all this bookkeeping. I don't want to do all the. I'll get somebody else to do it for me. And what was this bookkeeping? It was redistributing the wealth of the society collected from the people. Well, in a free society, that collection is by free will offerings, which is what Yahweh required from the beginning. The sacrifice of Christ is free will offerings. The sacrifice of Yahweh are free will offerings. The sacrifice of Solomon was not always free will offerings. Because he was setting up a corby. If you don't understand these things, and you don't understand the idolatry of setting up a system where everybody took their gold and put it into this one purse, this one statue, then you're not going to understand the other stuff. You have to get the basics. And then we'll go to the other stuff. But we'll have to do that when we come back. Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back. So, it's very important before we get into Ezra, because we're going to be jumping all over the place, uh, we're going to go through Ezra step by step, but we're going to be connecting the dots to all the other books. And in order to do that, we need to recognize what's a dot and what's not a dot. <laughs> now, that's a fly speck that somehow got into your thinking. And we're not going to be connecting that to anything, because it doesn't mean anything, because it's not a part of anything, like those... Uh, Ignis Fatui of the Talmud. And, and, you know, I don't want to pick on the guys of the Talmud. Some of them might have been very sincere, but the, uh, I could do the same thing with a lot of the early Protestant writers. And the, what was Truth Ministries that I was just listening to this morning, just to, you know, I get an email from them somehow or other. They, they send me email all the time, and it happened to be on a subject that I was actually looking at that morning, and I thought, well, let's see what they, have to say, because they say they were going to give the real, you know, the real information, the real, you know, facts of the matter. And I listened to it, and I mean, I it was only a few minutes long, seven minutes or something like that. Uh, it was nonsense, absolute, utter nonsense. And it's just per- per- perpetuating the nonsense that, uh, you know, that a lot of the Protestant churches indulge in. And uh, they got it from the nonsense that the that a lot of the people who wrote the Talmud indulge in. And uh, I'm not condemning the Talmud; it is what it is. I'm not uh, I'm not condemning the you know Superman comic books either. They are what they are. Uh, But they're not going to tell you the truth. You can read them. And you can study them in great detail. <laughs> but but uh, it's only the Holy Spirit that's going to reveal the real truth to you. But what these all these things that they tell you about the Bible that you accept because you were a kid or because that's what you wanted to believe or you trusted somebody or whatever reason, 
It, it cannot replace the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to constantly make reference to how do you get closer to the Holy Spirit because one of the ways to get closer to the Holy Spirit or bring draw the Holy Spirit close to you is Corbin. Because Corbin is from a word that means to draw near. And And in following the way, you will draw near. And part of the way of Christ was the Corbin of Christ. We have an article on that which is really about the first fruit offerings of Moses. That when they're out there in the wilderness, he demands all of a sudden first fruit offerings. You have to give the firstborn of everything. The first fruits. And, you know, that means your first fruit, your firstborn son has to be given to the altar. Well, of course, you don't have to actually give your son on the altar like they... They do in these uh, Moloch fires because it's a metaphor. But it's an old, ancient metaphor. And you can redeem them with a lamb. First donkey. Why weren't they burning up the donkeys, the firstborn donkey of your donkeys? They were to give that as the first fruits. But they could redeem the donkey with a lamb. And, of course, they're not going to bring in a 15-pound newborn lamb. They're going to grow up that lamb. And when it's butcher weight at 100 pounds or 120 pounds, 120 pounds a day back then, they might have been a little bit lighter weight. Then it goes to the sacrifice because it's marked as the firstborn. And it goes to the sacrifice to do what? Pile it on the stones and burn it up. That's what we're told about the Old Testament. But that interpretation was done away with by Christ. Same as the interpretation that we were to build temples made of stones. Very clear in the New Testament. He's saying we're building a temple without stones. And we're going to see that in Ezra. When they start to build the temple with stones, the old men wept. Because they knew that we're we're going the wrong direction here. We're not going the right way. We're going. We're not going to be creating the social bonds of a free system of a, a republic. We're going to be distracted by this stone temple and the effort we put into it, and the effort will become a corvée, where you're literally compelling people to build your temple. A core V is forced labor. Any forced labor system is a form of servitude. So it's a form of bondage. A form of being a bondsman. And it is leaven. Because we also studied, and when we studied Exodus, and we can go read our article on leaven, that leaven is cruelty. And it is cruel to take away the right of a man to choose how he will work today. That he has to go and work for you. He has to sweat the first four hours of his work day. Because I guess eight hours is the work day. I haven't seen an eight hour work day in a long time. <laughs> but to me, eight hours is the first half of the work day. <laughs> but the, uh, take that labor from that man. That's leaven. That's cruelty. 
unless it is freely given, it's not worthy of the altars of Yahweh. It's not worthy of the altars of Christ. It is not the Corban of Christ unless it is free will, unless it is charity. Paul says that, New Testament. So anyway, I, I, I wrote to this group and talking about the gold in the statue was a reserve fund. And we know this from our studies that in all the Greek city-states where they had golden statues, the statues were referred to as reserve funds. They also had, in their same temples, they had treasuries. And we explain all that. We show that in historical documents. We even quoted some of the Mari, some of the cuneiform writings that they... Of course, when I first started looking at some of those early writings... They hadn't, they hadn't excavated so many. They started with like a few thousand, I think, or not even that. I mean, they, when they first came across them, but they've un- uncovered quite a few since then. The last number I heard was somewhere around 20,000 that I can remember, but I think the number is actually closer to 30,000 now, because they've uncovered them in multiple places. And it's a wealth of information. But you can go through that and not get it if you don't understand the basics that these are systems of society. Legal systems, social welfare systems to take care of the needy of society, to create bonds between the people so they stick together when the enemy attacks. When armies come over the hill. When the Chinese invade. (laughs) Or whatever. Or when there's a fire in the north woods. That you have to have a way of coming together to fight that fire. Even if you find out it's not really a fire. But it's it's the aurora borealis. Which may cause global warming. <laughs> because of the events on the sun. Which is actually where most of your global warming comes from. Which isn't really even... There isn't really global warming. Things have been cooling. They've never met their temperature... Uh, estimations the same as they never met their COVID estimations they had to change the way in which they counted COVID deaths in order to come even minutely close to what they originally predicted we talked about that just a week ago in this county the doctors at the hospital were ordering body bags because they thought there would be 300 people dead from COVID the first month of the pandemic in this county. There's only 8,000 people in this county. And it's spread out. We we invented social distancing. <laughs> because we're a long ways from our neighbors. It used to be a joke that if you can see your neighbor's house from your front step, he lives too close. <laughs> or, uh, you know, if your neighbor's kids can make it to your house on foot by lunchtime... They live too close because we're out. We're distance is a big thing. Of course, that's just a joke. But uh, the reality is, is that we didn't have three COVID deaths the whole time. <laughs> we had we had more deaths from shots, from people getting shot, dying within seventy two hours, than we had from COVID deaths. If you if you calculate the deaths based on the way that we, and even those people who died. Supposedly of COVID, they had numerous morbidities and were extremely aged at the time and probably got the shot. 
as well. So it's difficult to tell. But if you don't understand these things, you can be led by fear to go the wrong way. And so the idea of understanding graven images is going to be absolutely essential. The golden calf. When I wrote this to that group explaining that and I gave them the link at preparing you to our article on graven images, which you can go go look up, or you can go to Exodus 20, and, and where that we talk about the graven images, and then that will link you to these other articles. You can see that and understand that it had nothing to do with superstitious statues or superstitious temples or superstitious church buildings. It had to do with the way in, it had to do with relationships of the people and what cultivated a good relationship a viable relationship that brought us closer to life and the tree of life and the relationships that teach us to bite one another immorally bite one another to get benefits at the expense of others one of those ignis fatui of the Talmud that they said was new laws that came out of the book of Ezra was not only that the, they they had to wash their clothes and do their laundry by Thursday due to the Sabbath coming, but they also had to rise up early on Friday to bake bread for the poor. So all the poor, bread for the poor that you were going to share with those people who didn't have enough food was already baked on Friday. Yeah, and now that's a good thing. But there's no law. But they say, no, no, there is a new law. They have a bunch of others. Some of them are actually embarrassing. But, but, uh, and we have them on our page on Ezra. We can go look at them and, and see what they came up with. And you go to see if you can find out where in Ezra these new laws were set up by Ezra. And find out what Ezra was really talking about. Because, their interpretation is a distraction. The same as thinking that piling up stones and burning up sheep was somehow serving God. No, sacrificing to living stones, which were the Levites, were the living stones of the altar who came together without exercising authority, one over the other of the people because they were all free will offerings, and also without hewing each other, taking away the choice of each of the other Levites who formed that living altar. And we're supposed to form that living area, that temple area, because the temple was an area. It wasn't a building. It became a building eventually, as we began to stray farther and farther away from the truth. And what drove us farther and farther away from the truth? Believing lies. Believing false interpretations. The man who, one of the men who were on that group responded, well, first we aren't under the old covenant, but the new. And what's the difference between the old covenant and the new? Well, we're not under their theories about what the old covenant was. (laughs) Because, see, they've they've all gone to the guys who we know got it wrong because Jesus said they got it wrong and said, what does the old covenant mean? What does the Torah mean? And it didn't mean what they said it meant. Because they had it wrong. And Jesus told us that they had it wrong. But we still go to them and say, well, what does it mean? Well, I'm telling you what it means. 
Well, what is the Holy Spirit telling you? Because that's more important. And he goes on to say, and besides the command about making graven images applies to making images of false gods to worship those gods. But Jesus isn't a false god. So I would think it doesn't come under that commandment. Because he's thinking the guy originally was talking about making images of Jesus. Maybe he was to some degree. But I wrote him back, a false image of Jesus is a false god. He warned us that many would think they know him, but wouldn't. And I give him a link to our article on Jesus at Preparing You. And then he comes back, having an inaccurate visual image of Christ isn't idolatry. As long as we know who he is based on the scripture. But of course, I wasn't talking about visual image and I wrote him back and said... I said nothing about a visual image. I'm talking about who Jesus was. He says, as long as our image of Jesus is based on Scripture. No, it's not just based on Scripture, but based on a true interpretation of Scripture. Jesus said we weren't to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other, but call themselves benefactors. He says we weren't supposed to be that way. When I tell, but, but these people, they're, they're worried about their social security, which comes from men of government who call themselves benefactors, exercise authority by forcing you and your neighbor to contribute to their Corbin, their treasury, but their, their Supreme Court judges have already ruled there is no division of funds. So, as soon as those funds enter into their treasury, they're available to government. They don't have to put their IOUs in any treasury. There is no... It was ruled way back in, in the 40s and 50s and 60s that there is no division of funds. There is no separate treasury. You have no account. They can take that money and use it up. And they don't have to give you any benefits. And you still owe a percentage of your labor. Because you're back in the bondage of Egypt. If you don't understand that, you will not understand Ezra. Just as you already don't understand Exodus. And you don't understand the New Testament. Because Jesus and God and the Lord said we were never to go, and Moses, we were never to go back that way again. But we have. We take the labor from our neighbor to provide us with benefits every day, from public school to public health to public welfare to Social Security. It's all based on force. Force sacrifices of the people. Which Samuel said was foolish. These are the basics. Now this Hobson Brown, who I was writing back, he doesn't get that. But I, I sent him several articles on the subject and, and explained to him. And, you know, and, but he says the, you know, I explained to him that the problem of the graven images can only be truly understood when their purpose and function in society is clarified. 
it is only then can one understand how they both snare and degenerate mankind. Because when man becomes accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for a livelihood on the property of others, including his right to work, his labor. When you're dependent upon taking from the labor of your neighbor, from your property of your neighbor, and again, like I said, there's three different words that they translate into Corvi, because it isn't just taking away 20% of a man's labor or 30% of a man's labor or or fourteen and a half percent of man's labor, it is it is also taking away from his land because that's the other the property tax is another form of the corvi. What he owns, because he owns his labor, supposedly owns his land, and we've explained that in the law, quoting the law, as you legal title doesn't include the ownership of land. So they can they can take a portion of the value of your land every year over and over again you know that that they take that portion away from you and if you don't pay it to them they just take the whole land away from you and give it to somebody else because you're back in the bondage of Egypt and you have that other word for Corvi is part of the law for you this man wants to believe that he's free This man wants to believe that he's following Jesus. If he was following Jesus, this would have never taken place. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be back in the bondage of Egypt. We would be doing what we did in the first 50 to 100 years in America. We'd be taking care of the needy through the first fruits offerings, the free will offerings, the charity of real Christians who were probably still gathering in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, which many early Christians in America did, to take care of the needy of their communities, taking care of the education of their children, taking care of the welfare of the the widows and orphans in pure religion. We would still be doing that, but we don't do that anymore. And the memory of us doing that is gone, which we talked about as we went through Ecclesiastes. That you would not remember. You will not retain that memory. So now I'm bringing back that memory and telling you about it. But you have to have the humble heart willing to see it. The guy eventually supposedly read the article and he says, I don't agree with the article's opinion on what graven images are or were. Nice, intriguing theory though, mate, I don't know. Is he from Australia? (laughs) But, uh, and of course I just responded, your agreement or disagreement has little to no effect on the truth, which is that the modern Christians are under a strong delusion because they do not want to admit that their covetousness is idolatry. And I include the quote from Colossians 3.5, Mortify therefore your members... Humble your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And of course, if you read our articles on fornication, it doesn't just include 
fornication outside of, you know, sexual relationships outside of marriage. Fornication, adultery. Most of the time in the Bible when it talks about adultery, it's not talking about sexual adultery. It's talking about national adultery. Where the woman you go to for your welfare is more like the turtle goddess of Sumar, or Sumer, or Ishtar, or these kings that we're going to see in Ezra. But King Cyrus appears, as we go through the text, he appears to understand that there was something unique about the temple in Jerusalem. Alexander the Great knew knew that there was something unique about it. Constantine knew that there was something unique about it and 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 wanted people to go back to that, which is actually one of the problems that we'll see throughout the book of Ezra, is that their journey back to that included leaven. And a little leaven spoiled the whole loaf. Because it will, it will contaminate everything. So this is where we're at. We're not at the point where we're bringing a little leaven in. The leaven of the Pharisees is pervasive throughout this society that we live in. Hobson Brown doesn't want to see that. Because it says right there, covetousness, which is idolatry. And he doesn't want to see it. He doesn't, he doesn't, he can't mentally make the connection. Because his brain isn't going there. His tree of knowledge is not going to, if he sees that branch that exposes his nakedness and that he cannot interpretate the, interpret the Bible with his own tree of knowledge. He is going to accept that. He's going to hide from that. Truth. He's going to hide from that fact because he, his brain is incapable of doing that. And he, nobody's brain is incapable of finding the truth without the Holy Spirit, without the tree of life. And so how do you get to the tree of life? And how do you get the tree of life to come to you, the Holy Spirit to come to you? Sacrifice. And how did Jesus say to make that sacrifice? Sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. How did Moses say to do it? Give the first fruits. Don't wait till somebody's in need. Give. Cast your bread. What is it saying in Ecclesiastes? Cast your bread upon the waters in hopes that it comes back to you. You have to start to sacrifice to clear your mind. People want to think that I, 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 I want, I want to know what the Holy Spirit does, but they're dealing with emotion. And they want to deny that it's emotion. But they don't feel the charge of that relationship. But because they don't feel the emotion, they feel empty. And of course, that is the way you have to feel and suffer that emptiness. Don't try to cover or hide that emptiness. And wait upon the Lord to fill that emptiness. You can't make the Holy Spirit enter into your heart and your mind. And and be your assurance. 
You can't make it do it. You have to wait upon the Lord. And you may at times feel like God has forsaken you. But this is why you gather together. So that one is weak, the other can be strong. That that we we are social creatures. It's not right that we be alone. But our impatience, our intolerance drives us away and other people away from us. So we need to repent of that. Come together. We'll be right back. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So one of the things that... uh, I was going to share with you. I, w- I was just noticing that there's a particular word that is in the Hebrew that is used to describe, well, there's actually three different words that are used in the Hebrew to s- describe a, a certain tax that is uh, placed on the people. And uh, there's the menda, is the, the king's portion, and the bello, which is the money of the head tax, and there is another one that is called halakha, which is the, what he gets from the corvi labor of the people. I was looking at uh, the translation of uh, Ishak, uh, Meshach and Abednego, and they're walking through the fiery furnace, and the word they use there is unique in the, those verses. I just looked at it during the break. Just out of curiosity, something drew me to so that I would look it up. And and we see that particular word appear three times in Daniel only. And in Daniel only is translated as walking. That's it. That's that's its entire appearance in the entire biblical text. Now, there's all kinds of words that mean walking. But why is that particular one used there, which is almost identical to the word that we see as uh, this portion of the corvi. And and why, particularly in this reference to, like we see in Daniel 4.37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment And those that walk, there's that word again, halal, in pride he is able to abase. And of course Nebuchadnezzar walked in pride and, you know, and sent them to the furnace. Well that's the, that same word walk is the word that we see where the four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. They use the same word over there. (laughs) But it's not the normal word for walk. And we don't find it anywhere else in the biblical text. What is going on? Well, we'll be exploring some of that because going to Ezra is going to take us into Daniel. As well as all the other books that I've been mentioning. So this is kind of a, you know, a fulcrum point where we can start bringing the dots together. But more important than bringing the dots together, we need to bring the people together. And those people need to come together in faith, hope, and charity and start living like the early church, living like early Israel, where they began to create a social welfare system entirely based 
on free will offerings. Free will offerings in the Old Testament, charity in the New. They both mean the same. Because the Old Testament is talking about the message of the New Testament. But Jesus is properly interpreting the Old Testament, which is why he was not impressed with the stone temple. He was going to build a, a temple made without hands. A, a living stones. And that's what you need to do. And you have just enough time to do it. So, anyway, uh, in talking to Mr. Hobson Brown, I was seeing that, you know, he wasn't wasn't getting it. And, of course, I'm sharing with it. And, and But he comes back with, uh, you know, that... Uh, and that I was being cute. He actually says, uh, it's cute. You think that the article is truth. No, the article is my opinion, which I eventually write to him. Yes, it has a bit of truth sprinkled through it, but isn't truth at all. False teaching. Now, I do agree that there are modern Christians that are deceived in many areas, but not him. <laughs> Jesus said this would be but they are his children for eternity. Well, Jesus has a parable about a child who says he's going to do what what his father asks him. But then he changes his mind and doesn't do it. And then there's a child who said, no, I don't want to do it. But then he changes his mind and does do it. And he asks, which one is my child? Which one is the true child, the true son? It's the one who did it. And, of course, we see that echoed in John. Uh, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It didn't say, if you love me, you occasionally keep my commandments. It says, you will keep my commandments. James, how do you know? Because of what they're doing. They're not earning salvation. Nobody's suggesting that. But if you're a worker of iniquity, Jesus says, get ye from me, I know you not. You don't know me. I don't know you. We don't know each other. We don't have a relationship. That whatever you thought. I mean those people thought they had a relationship with Christ. They thought they were doing great things in Christ's name. He says get ye from me you workers of iniquity. What is that iniquity? You've been biting one another. You've been coveting your neighbor's goods. Which is idolatry. You have to grasp that or be willing to not walk in pride. Or you'll be eating grass along the side of the road. I always remember that story because my, my grandparents on the Irish side of my family uh, were in the potato famines of Ireland. And it was during some of those difficult times that they immigrated to America. You know, they worked in, uh, they, they immigrated off the farms and and worked in a quarry, stone quarry, and then they saved up their money and eventually immigrated to America. And, uh, but the, the stories during the potato famines, they would find people dead along the side of the road and there'd be this green foam in their mouth because they'd been eating the grass along the side of the road. There was nothing to eat. That such a famine could come upon the whole world. You need to repent now before like Nebuchadnezzar 
Because I don't think it will take seven years of wandering in the desert. Now, of course, I'm mentioning Nebuchadnezzar because that's an important part of the story of Ezra. That Nebuchadnezzar walked in pride. He thought, I know it all. Uh, what I say is was right. I have the truth. And uh, the and like I said, I told him that uh, the article. Uh, I ne- never said the article was the truth. I think the truth is the truth. The article is my opinion about what the truth is. And ultimately, he admitted that I said not all claimed as truth in the article is truth. Well, the article in claiming that all is the truth, it's, it's an opinion of trying to find the truth. But I asked him, I said, but you haven't told me what's not true. The article's laid out there, and we're talking the graven image article. There are other articles that I shared with him. And I said, it should have nothing, no difficulty in finding what's not true in the article. It's not that long an article on graven images. What's what's incorrect? You should be able to say, well, that's not true. And it says, but you haven't ever said what's not true. You just say you don't want to believe it. Well, Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to believe Daniel. But it was a mistake on his part. And I have not heard from him. <laughs> he can't tell me what's not true. So, everybody out there, you need to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands like Christ commanded his disciples to make the people do. You need to cast your bread upon the waters. You need to not, you need to start thinking about how can I help build the relationships with one another because that's how you build the relationships with God. Is that you cast your bread upon the waters in hopes that it will come back to you. That's the sacrifice that's going to draw the Holy Spirit to you. Yes, and, and people are right. The Holy Spirit is not an emotional experience. As a matter of fact, it's absolutely devoid of emotion. Because what you will find is that the, the, the way you get rid of fear and anxiety now is distraction. Emotional distraction, stimulation of endorphins, etc., etc. We've talked about this before. But when it's the Holy Spirit, the fear just is gone. There sometimes is a feeling of relief or a heavy weight taken off of you or what have you. But the next moment, you have to keep bringing that Holy Spirit back and drawing it to you. And it will, just like your own breath, it will list it where it will. And so as we go through the book of Ezra, we need to be understanding this because we're going to constantly make references back to this. But the... You know, we didn't start with the book of Ezra. We didn't start with all the, you know, we've, I, I've, I've quoted from the New Testament all the time. And we've gone through Romans and, and many of the epistles. But if we don't, if we're still thinking that Moses was gathering the people in the desert to burn up sheep and lambs and goats, that is not why he was gathering the people. He was gathering the people to worship God 
by loving one another as Christ loved us. As Moses, that was one of the things that I was actually impressed with going through Exodus. You know, I've gone through it before, but and going through the study, I have to go back. The number of times that Moses is praying for these people who are sometimes giving him a hard time, ridiculing him, mocking him, and he's still praying for them. That's Christ-like. How many people have you driven away from you in your life because you were intolerant and unforgiving? How many times, why are you now surrounded with friends? You mean, like, I'm not a big social light with friends and everything. I can, I can visit with them. And, and most of the people around about me like me. I'm sure I've got some enemies out there. But they're probably not my enemies. They're probably just the enemies of the truth. <laughs> if you get me, you're gonna, eventually we're gonna get around to the truth. But uh, that's okay. They're not my enemies. My enemy is my own pride, the same as Nebuchadnezzar. My enemy is my own vanity, and we know vanity is vanity, and all is vanity. And we also know that vanity is emptiness. And all is empty, but what is not empty is the very thing that appears to be empty, which is the Holy Spirit, because it's not a thing. It is a thing, but it's on a spiritual level. And that's what we need to raise up in us, is that that spirit. But we have no control over that. The same as uh, Hobson Brown has no control over what is true and what is not true. Or I have no control over what is true and not true. I speak to you of things that I see as true. And I speak to you of things that I used to think were true and now I believe is false. I try to help you set down your baggage so that you can pick up a more righteous burden. And much of your baggage is, somebody just wrote on Facebook, somebody I know, actually works with my son, uh, wrote something on there about religion and relationships. And, and it was very good what he wrote. But I thought what I wrote was better. <laughs> I can't remember what I wrote. I'd have to look it up. I've shut my phone off already. I should have, maybe I'll save it for the afternoon program, but is this, Basically, it, the kingdom of God, uh, is about relationships. And it's your relationship with God, with Christ. But it's, that relationship is manifested in your relationship with everybody else round about you. Your relationship with your family, your relationship with your neighbor, your relationship with your enemies, your relationship with your government, and is it a relationship that Christ would cultivate? Is it a relationship that Moses would cultivate? Is it a relationship based on faith, open charity? Forgiveness is charity. To forgive somebody, not you. You have to remember your forgiveness is not absolution. Because you're not judge. God is judge. That you forgive their trespasses against you. 
so that your trespasses against others may be forgiven you. That's why Christ said, you know, Raka, if you still have a beef with your neighbor, your brother or whatever, resolve that. Start, and, and one of the ways that people resolve it is they avoid it. But it's not resolved. It's just avoided. And that's, that's trauma undealt with. That's one of the things that we will touch on. You know, I come across that is this idea of confession. Confession is just admitting that you've done wrong. And that was the problem with Adam and Eve way back there in the garden. They knew they did wrong right away when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Tried to decide for themselves what was good and evil with their own brains. Their own minds. Their own flesh. They thinking. They fell more to the flesh and fell away from the spirit. The first thing they did is deny it and hide from it. Not accept the blame for what they did. They didn't, you know, that in order to confess what they did wrong, God had to call them out. What have you done? They didn't, they didn't run to God and confess we screwed up. They hid from God. And that's why we're in the problem that we're in today. Is, you know, Mr. Hobson is still hiding from the truth. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's mulling it over. You know, as I speak about him, I'm praying about him. You know, he hasn't responded now. It's been quite a while. <laughs> uh, is he going back and reading the article trying to find out what's not true? Because it definitely disagrees with what he believed, believed when he began to read it. But find where it's not true. Go th- do do your study. Do your homework. Find out where it's not true. So we're giving you lots and lots of tidbits, lots and lots of pieces of the puzzle, the the dots of the kingdom of God. But where you're really going to learn to put those dots together is to realize that you're one of those dots. You're one of those thousand, hundred forty-four thousand, hundred forty-four million dots of light, points of light. And if if there's any light in you, you need to share it with others. You need to gather together to do that. And so we have the Burning Bush Festival coming up. This uh, First uh, weekend of September. And people are welcome to come out. If you're coming out, let us know. If you're going to be here, let us know. And uh, it's a camping event. I mean, there you might find some room in the motel. You probably won't find much room in the RV park. But we can find you a place to park. We can find you a place to put up a tent. Uh, we have that kind of uh, positions available. But uh, uh, you, you're welcome to come. You know, there are people coming before the weekend. And uh, there are people wanting to stay longer. But it's it's kind of our, right now, it's the estimate of our Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, we have it at this particular time every year. Because it, it's more convenient for people. 
where we live in the high desert and if we have it late in like October or something, people may have to drive back a long way. We've had people come all the way from Australia. We have had people coming all the way from New York. We have people coming from California. If uh, people are going to fly into Bend or the Portland Bend, uh, Redmond Bend Airport, uh, we can maybe pick you up, coordinate with us on the network at hisholychurch.org or preparingyou.com. Don't write me. <laughs> uh, get on the network, which is an email group, and tell them, I can't coordinate for all these people. I can do what I can, but we have to start doing it through the network. We have another festival that I don't sponsor, but uh, is actually uh, on... Uh, been on the church property and where somebody else is paying it and sponsoring it. It's the White Rock Festival and that's in the spring. And that's, uh, it may eventually turn into our, our spring festival or at least a portion of it because we, in the festivals of Israel and the festivals of early Christianity, Oktoberfest is still celebrated. Not the way it should be, probably, in most places, but that's all coming down from those traditions. But uh, that particular festival is, you know, arts and craft kind of festival. People learn outdoor craft, and there's teachers there, and you can take courses, and they're really reasonable. Uh, and we can, now that, that sells tickets if you want to uh, camp in uh, the mobile kitchen that provides meals and stuff like that. Uh, you will have to buy the ticket to get the meals and stuff, but that's what finances the event. But we can have an event around that that is solely church event and combine them because that's what the early Israelites did. That you know, One of the early times where we were gathering, somebody who thought they knew the Bible was saying, no, no, we can only have people that are a part of the church and all this stuff. And it tells you right in the Bible that those festivals, you were supposed to invite the people around about you. Because Israel and Christianity are to be priests to all nations. And that's another topic that we will cover as we go through Ezra. What's a priest? What's his duties? You know, we just talked today about graven images. And, and there's... a we have recordings already in detail explanation of that on the page on graven images and and our study on Exodus. But what's a priest? What's an ethanim? What's a singer? What's a porter of the temple? Uh, what are they supposed to do and what are they not supposed to do? Because the porters of the temple at the time of Christ were fired by Christ. We call them money changers. Because they were doing what they were not to do. There was leaven in what they were doing. There was cruelty and oppression in what they were doing. Because they had turned a system based on charity and free will offerings into a system based on force. Modern America has done this. Modern Australia has done this. New Zealand has done this. England has done it. France has done it. China has done it. Some to greater extents, and we see more persecution and death in these places. Venezuela is trying to do it. They're the one purse. They are the cauldron. They are the flesh in that cauldron. And they depend upon men who exercise authority one over the other to provide them with their daily bread. 
They're not praying to the Father in heaven for their daily bread. They're praying, praying to the Father of Venezuela or their Father of England or their Father of Canada for their daily bread. And they don't know that the degeneration of the masses has taken place. And the strain, the apostasy of the church has already taken place. They don't want to see that. I can understand that why they don't want to see that. But you, if you're going to be alone in the fiery furnace, you're going to be out there in the fields, running around on all fours, eating grass. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to preach a gospel of fear. But this is what they're telling Nebuchadnezzar realized. The pride is destructive. Humility. This is why Christ talks about humility. We have to realize how wrong we were and turn around and go the other way. So, join the network. Join the living network by joining a congregation. And nobody's expecting your minister to be a saint. But nobody expects you to be a saint. But everybody has to repent and start caring about others as much as they care about themselves. That's our goal. That's our task. Because that will open us up to the Holy Spirit. And until then, all I can say is peace upon your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.